Today's Bible reading comes from Isaiah 55 verses 1 to 9 and I'll be reading from the ESV version. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Hey, good morning, church. I'm really excited to be opening up our passage with you today. It's a beautiful passage. And uh, if I haven't met you before, I'm Ben. I'm part of the staff team here. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah 55 today, a beautiful piece of scripture from the Old Testament. And as I open up, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever misunderstood someone before? Now, of course, I think we have all done that, but I wonder if you can think of a time where you made some pretty strong assumptions about someone initially and they turned out to be completely untrue later on. Our assumptions about people are powerful because they can change the way we feel about them, can change the way we approach them. Recently, I was speaking to one of my dad's friends and he was a great rugby player back in the day. He played Australian schoolboys rugby. And he actually played alongside Ricky Stewart. Now, if you're not an NRL fan, you might not know who he is, but he's a big deal in the NRL world. He is the coach of the Canberra Raiders. He played for the Australian Kangaroos, and he even played for rugby union with the Australian Wallabies. So he's a great player, great coach. And my friend played a few games alongside him in Australian schoolboys rugby. And in a few little interactions, and the impression that he came away with was that Ricky was about Ricky. He was arrogant, he was self-absorbed, not the kind of guy that my friend liked. And so my friend carried this view of Ricky well into his life until about 20 or so years later, he went along to an NRL function. And Ricky was the keynote speaker at this function and my friend was standing across the room, he was watching Ricky, the man of the hour, People were surrounding him. Everyone wanted a piece of Ricky. He was actually up for a coaching position at the time, so there were reporters and cameras there. 
And so my friend was just watching this go on on the other side of the room. And, and as he was watching, he caught Ricky's eye. And Ricky just brushed everyone off around him. And he decided to walk across the room. And he walked all the way over to my friend, called him by his full name and said, mate, I haven't seen you in ages. How are you doing? And for the next 40 minutes, Ricky spent time talking to my friend about family, about footy, about work. And they just had a great conversation. He brushed off people that tried to come and interrupt and said, you know what, I'm just catching up with an old friend right now. And he even left my friend with his mobile number and they're still in contact to this day. Now, someone, Ricky, who my friend had assumed was self-absorbed and arrogant, actually turned out to be a really nice, down-to-earth guy. His assumptions were blown up. And my point in telling you that story is our assumptions are powerful. They can change the way we think about people, and they can change the way we feel about God. And it's really important that we think about what we think about God today. Our passage this morning is going to deal with some huge misconceptions about God that are especially prevalent outside of the church, but are sometimes just as prevalent inside the church. And it's important we think about who God is, because if we do not really know God as He really is, we may live out the Christian life in ways that don't actually make sense. We may carry emotional baggage about God that just isn't true we may avoid a relationship with God altogether. So we want to think deeply about who God is and we want to let him tell us who he is this morning. And he's going to do just that in Isaiah 55. So as we open up, we're going to notice that there are three sections. In the first two sections, God does things. He he talks about his actions and they tell us a little bit about who he is. But then in the third section... God tells us about something that characterizes him in his deepest heart. He lays it bare. He tells us who he is. So let's take a look at his actions and his words in Isaiah 55. And the first section I've called the God who blesses, because this is what he does. The God who blesses. Now, as we get into it, we need to understand who Isaiah is speaking to in this passage. He's speaking to Israelites who have been exiled from their homeland in Israel, and for good reason. So many years prior to this moment, uh, God had taken Israel out of slavery from Egypt. He'd made them his own people, and he made a covenant with them. He He established his relationship with them, and he talked about how he wanted to bless them. But at the end of Deuteronomy, he also warned them about what would happen if they were faithless to him. And one of the warnings he gave was that he would take them out of the land he was giving them and they would serve another nation. And as you read through the Bible, you see again and again and again that Israel rebelled against God, rejected his rule, did things that displeased him, did things that hurt him, did things that trampled over his goodness. And eventually God fulfilled his warning. He sent this ruthless nation, Babylon, who came and they put Jerusalem to siege. They ransacked it. They killed people. They degraded their royalty, their elders, and they carried the people off to Babylon. And so when we're looking at Isaiah 55, we need to remember that Isaiah is speaking to this people, this rebellious people, 
but hopeless people outside of their homeland, living under the foreign superpower, Babylon. And I wonder how you and I would speak to people who treated like us like that. I wonder how you and I would speak to someone who betrayed us time and time again. You know, if we hadn't given up on them by this point, um, perhaps if we had some ounce of compassion left and we wanted to re-engage with them, I reckon we'd be pretty cautious. I reckon we'd go up to them and say, hey, you know what, I think we can try and make this thing work, but let's take it slow. I'm going to put some boundaries in place. Uh, and you, you've got to show me uh, that you're you're willing to change this time and you're not going to do those things to hurt me again and, and, and let's just take it slow and see if we can rebuild some trust. But that's not how God talks to the Israelites. He's so unlike us. Let's take a look at how he speaks to them in verses 1 to 2. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Wow. That's pretty counterintuitive. Who would have thought that God would respond to a rebellious people like this. But apparently he isn't done with them. And in fact, all he wants to do is bless them. He tells them to come and to feast with him at no cost because he will pay for it himself. Imagine Rupert Murdoch, the owner of News Corp, a billionaire, he's an Australian. Imagine he owns like an amazing penthouse in the middle of Brisbane City. And he sends you an invitation to come to join him at his penthouse with a, with a list of exclusive guests and to just enjoy this lavish party with decadent foods, a whole feast laid out for you, amazing wine, the best craft beers in town. And, and you go along and you enjoy yourself. Now, I reckon most of us would be thinking, if we're thinking realistically, this is kind of weird. Like, why would Rupert Murdoch want anything to do with us? Why would he invite us to this feast? Like, is there something going on? Like, is he stealing my information while this is happening? Or like, why am I here? We just don't believe that someone would be that sincerely kind and generous, especially to people who are nobodies in comparison. Now, if we extended that illustration a little further and we imagined that we had actually betrayed Rupert at one point in his life and then he issued us this invitation... I think we'd be like, no way, I'm not going. It's, it's a trap. He's going to do something somehow. Like, there's no way he just wants to bless me after what happened. But that's exactly what God does to Israel. And he does it sincerely. He does it from his heart. He wants to bless them. He wants to give them good things. And he tells them to come at no cost. In fact, the only qualification is if you have thirst, verse 1. Anyone who thirsts can come. If you have no money, nothing to give, that's okay. God will pay for it. God will provide this feast. And as we read on, we find that God isn't finished making big promises. In verses 3 to 4, he says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. 
Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. So God keeps calling them to come to him and he promises to make an everlasting covenant with them if they do. Now that word covenant, that's a big word. That's a big Bible word, a really important word in the Bible. And really, it just means to an agreement. It's an agreement that is far more uh, binding and strong than a mere promise, but it's far more loving and relational than a contract. It's this binding, relational agreement. It's a lot like marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And so God promises to make this strong, relational agreement, this covenant with Israel, because he wants to, in that covenant, extend blessing to them. And specifically, he wants to extend the blessings of another covenant, a covenant he had made earlier in the biblical story with David to these exiles. Okay? So if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, earlier in the Bible, we read about God making this covenant with David. And in it, he gives him some audacious promises. He promises to give him an heir, a son, whose throne and whose rule would never come to an end. Let me read a little bit to you from 2 Samuel 7 verse 13 where it says I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son then verse 16 and your house and your kingdom David shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever now if we just jump back to the exile situation for a moment we think about what they would have felt like. Their kingdom had been destroyed. Their royalty dethroned and deported off to Babylon. And they may have been wondering, what had happened to this promise to David? Was God still going to give him a a king, a son, whose reign would never end? Or was that conditional on their obedience and their faithfulness? Had they just blown it away? What was going to happen with that? Well, in Isaiah 55, God reminds them that he's not forgotten his promise. It wasn't based on their obedience. It wasn't based on David's obedience. It's based on his grace and his word never fails. And if they come to him, he wanted to extend to them the blessings of this covenant with David. He wanted to extend to them the blessing of living under this future king, whose rule would never end. It would be a righteous rule. It would be a rule of peace and goodness. And they would be able to live under it if they would but just come and return to the Lord. Now, I think there's some beautiful promises and some beautiful blessings in those first few verses. But the thing is that God doesn't just want us to hear them. He wants us to respond to them. Actually, it was four times in the first few verses that he calls us to come to him. He says it time and again, come, come to me. And then in verses six to seven, he expands on what that looks like. He gets right down on our eye level and he calls on us to repent, to forsake our wicked ways and our unrighteous thoughts. It's pretty confronting. This is uh, the second section in our passage, the God who convicts, the God who 
convicts. Let me read to you verses 6 to 7 where it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Isn't it amazing that after all the exiles had been through, they'd been through some serious judgment, that they still seemed to have need to repent. It's almost like they hadn't learned their lesson. God still calls on them to repent, to forsake their wickedness, to, to let go of their unrighteous thoughts. And really, I think this is really insightful of the human condition, of our own brokenness and sinfulness and fallenness. All of us are broken. We do and we think things that we would never want played on this screen right now. And so just as the exiles needed to repent, we need to repent and to keep repenting today. And I don't know where God wants to press in on your heart this morning, but you may have a very keen sense right now of a place in your life that is not right with God. You may have a very keen sense of a place where you are not walking with him, where you are withholding from him, and he is convicting you and calling you to come to him. Maybe for you, it's a bubbling sense of anger. Maybe it's when people disrespect you, and in times of privacy, maybe it's at home, maybe it's with your spouse or with your kids, your anger overflows and it ends up in a harsh word or a, or a spiteful look. Maybe for you, it, it's, a, it's a secret fantasy world that you retreat to. Nobody else knows about it, but, but you think of people who do not belong to you. You fantasize about them. Or maybe you visit websites that you know are not right and are not good for you or for your marriage or for anything else. Maybe for you, it, it's pride Now, the proud person often doesn't know that they're proud, but maybe you are judgmental of other people. I mean, I just want want you to think about that for a moment. What do you think about people who are different to you, who are weird in your eyes? Do you move toward them in love or do you avoid them? Do you speak well of them or do you like to laugh about them with your friends and make little comments about them with, with some of your closer friends later on? How do you think about and treat people who are different to you, who are weird to you? Because if we do laugh at them and make comments about them, that can really be a sign that we're a proud person. I love how the New Testament is real about our brokenness. James himself says in his letter in chapter 3, we all stumble in many ways. In other words, we're all in this together. I love that James acknowledges that. And the beautiful thing about the church is that this is a community where we can be honest with one another, where we can be real about our brokenness, our shortcomings, our wrongdoing, and be received with love and be helped forward together. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Of all places on earth, the church should be a place where we can be honest. 
I know some people outside the church think that on Sundays it's a place where you're supposed to come with your best suit and tie, with your best face on, with your best smile. But really, this is a place where we can be our real, authentic selves. Why? Well, we don't just worship a God who convicts, who calls out what is wrong, but we worship a God who abundantly pardons who is willing to forgive, who wants to forgive. And this is exactly what God sets out to reassure us of in the final section of Isaiah 55. Let's read it together. And this third section is called the God of abundant kindness. The God of abundant kindness. The rest of verse 7 says this, Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's good news. I love the Hebrew word behind that word abundantly. It's the word ravah, ravah, and it means to make great, to increase, to do something frequently, copiously, continually. It's as if God says, yes, This thing in your life is wrong. It is wicked. But come to me because I will increase forgiveness towards you. I will multiply it. As many times as you come to me, I will continually forgive and pardon you. I am so willing. I am compassionate. Come to me for I will abundantly pardon. You see, the solution to our brokenness is not to downplay it. It's not to avoid it. That's not to call it something it's not. God's real about it with us. He calls it for what it is. But then he floods us with grace and with mercy and with forgiveness. He is so willing to forgive anyone who comes to him. I think many of us find this hard to believe, especially in the wake of our own failures and sins. And I suppose it's because we don't really operate like this. If someone betrayed us as much as Israel betrayed God throughout the Old Testament, I think we would have given up on them years ago. We form relationships with one another, often on a mutual basis. If both sides are doing their part to be kind, to make effort, we'll continue the relationship. But if the other side doesn't do enough, we we close up or we walk away. When we're really being immature, we operate on a tit-for-tat basis. If someone wrongs us, we think of something that they should get back in return and we dish it out back to them. In fact, we love this idea of equal treatment where people get what they deserve, what they merit, what they work for. And then we slap this idea onto God. And it's no wonder that so many of us want to avoid him. That so many people out there in the world who believe this stuff want to avoid him. You know, personally, church, I thank God. I thank God that he's not like us because I deserve hell, but he's given me forgiveness and love and grace and kindness. That's what my father's given me. And God reassures our doubtful hearts that this is true. 
In the following verses, he explains why he will abundantly pardon. He says in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I love what John Calvin says about these verses. He says, God is infinitely compassionate, infinitely ready to forgive, so that it ought to be ascribed exclusively to our unbelief if we do not obtain pardon from Him. So what's stopping you from coming to God this morning? Maybe you've joined us for the first time online today, you're checking things out, and I want to ask you, What's stopping you from coming to God? Do, Do you think that He just wouldn't forgive you? Do you think He's harsh, that He's angry with you, and if you come, you'll just get scolded? What is it that you think about God? Because Isaiah 55 shows us that He is compassionate towards sinners who come to Him, that He is abundantly ready to forgive and to pardon anyone who would come to Him. Isaiah 55 wants to correct our misconceptions about God this morning. And not only does our passage contain God's words about His own heart, but it also contains His plan to further reveal His heart in human history, to further reveal who He is. Let's go back to verse 3 for a moment. Now, this verse is a little tricky to interpret. I'm just going to read it to you again to remind you of it. And it contains a plan, a prophecy that I want you to see. Let me read it to you. Verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, there's a line in those verses, in that verse, that's really difficult to translate. So if you don't know already, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And trying to get that last line into English is really difficult. That line which says, my steadfast, sure love for David. If you've got a different translation, check out your Bible. You've probably got a different way of saying that last line. And really, it literally sounds something like this. It sounds like the kind deeds or the steadfast loves of David, to David, it's a little bit ambiguous. You have to do some interpreting to get there. But I think the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, gets it right when it translates it this way. Right, it says, I will make a permanent covenant with with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David. So God's essentially saying to Israel, if you come to me, I will make a permanent covenant with you because of the faithful deeds of David. Now, if you know your Bible well, you'll be thinking about David and you think he was pretty amazing in some ways, but then also his life was pretty horrific at times. Like, I mean, he stole another man's wife and murdered that man. I mean, how can he possibly have secured this special promise for Israel? How can it be based on his so-called faithful deeds? There were many times when he was faithless. How can that work? Well, the thing is, while this verse glances back to the covenant God made with David for a moment, 
it actually really looks forward to a David of the future, to a greater David, a type of David. It's a future promise. So how can I say this? Well, Isaiah has been building up this idea throughout his book. If we go all the way back to chapter 9, it says this about a mysterious figure, prophesies this about him. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. So when we hear David's throne, we should immediately be thinking back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This sounds like the son of David who would rule forever. It sounds like a Davidic king. Okay. Well, then two chapters later after that, in Isaiah chapter 11, we read this in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Okay, so there's some, some picture language going on there. There's a stump and a shoot comes out of it. And this stump is called the stump of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse in the Bible? I wonder if you remember who Jesse was. Jesse was David's father. Okay? Alec Motya, a great commentator, he, uh, he comments on this so well. This is what he says. He says, The reference to Jesse indicates that the shoot is not just another king in David's line, but rather another David. Another David. So clearly throughout this book, Isaiah is building up an expectation for a future king, a future David, a greater David than the one from the past. So when it finally comes to Isaiah 55 verse 3, and it says, I'll make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David, we should be thinking of this future David that Isaiah has been prophesying about. Now you might wonder, who is this promised king? Who could possibly be that good, that faithful, that wonderful that they could secure such an amazing covenant, a promise for these rebellious exiles in Babylon? Who could do that? Well, the New Testament opens up with Matthew 1, verse 1, which says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You see, this is why the New Testament makes a big deal about Jesus' relation to David, because he was the son who David was promised. He is the king whose rule would never end. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 55, verse 3. And he is the ultimate revelation of God's kind, compassionate heart, because he himself is God in the flesh. You see, God could offer to make an everlasting covenant with the exiles back then and with you and me today, not only because he tells us he is so willing to pardon, but because he has acted in human history to deal with our faithlessness. He has sent the faithful David, the true David, Jesus the Christ, who wrote a new human story. You see, the original human story was written by Adam and Eve, and that was a story of sin, there's a story of mistrust in God, a story of pain and suffering and death. But when Jesus came on the scene, he lived a life of faithfulness. Even after 40 days and 40 nights without food and water, he was hungry, he was thirsty. Satan came along and tempted him just as he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. But Jesus stood firm. Jesus rejected Satan. He trusted God. He stuck with his word. He remained faithful. 
throughout his ministry in Israel, Jesus was on the road all the time. He was busy. And there were times in his life where he longed to just go to a solitary place to spend some time in prayer. And there's one particular time where he was about to do that and then all of a sudden the crowds find him again and they rush up to him. Now, I think if that was me, I'd be harsh. I'd be like, just give me some space. I need some time alone. But the text says that Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion on them. And he proceeded to teach them about the kingdom of God that he was bringing, the rule, the good reign of God. He was faithful to us. And, and throughout his ministry in Israel, there would have been different Jewish groups as well who wanted him to be a particular type of Messiah, to, to get angry, to get violent, to get people involved militarily and to overthrow Rome. But Jesus resisted our way of doing things and he chose to lead a lowly life, a life of suffering, a life that ultimately ended at the cross. Jesus was that obedient that he submitted himself to the shame of the Roman cross. He died in that place because he was dying to serve our death penalty, to serve the penalty for our sin so that he could make us right with God and so that he could put our sin to death. God disproves our puny thoughts about him by revealing his abundant kindness in Jesus. God disproves our little human puny thoughts that we slap onto him by telling us what his deepest heart really is and by working in human history through Jesus to show his abundant love at the cross. And you know what? Jesus is calling us to come to him this morning. His arms were opened up at the cross and they remain open to moral failures and outcasts and sinners today. Jesus is calling us to come and feast with him at no cost because he has paid for it. Jesus looks at broken people with compassion. The more sinful we are, the more his heart just moves out to come and help us and heal us. The more we sin, the more we feel shame, the more he wants to relieve us if we will but come to him. We cannot wear him out with our sin. In fact, Jesus promised in John's gospel that he would never cast out anyone who comes to him. So if God's convicted you of something this morning, if he's revealed something to you that's not right between you and him, I want to call on you in the words of Isaiah to return to the Lord that he may have compassion on you and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I remember when I first came alive in my faith towards the end of high school and I came straight along to this church and I started growing in my faith and I remember hearing the preaching every Sunday night and at the end of services I'd often feel convicted I'd often feel that there were things in my life that weren't right between me and God, things that God had revealed to me. And I remember often going over to the what was then called the prayer corner, and I would go and talk to Pastor Adam or to Pastor John, who used to, um, to be on staff here. And I would just lay it out. I would just tell them what was wrong. I would tell them my sin. I'd confess it to them. And they would just remind me of the gospel again and again. Just remind me of the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus. 
And I remember leaving those times of confession and prayer with them, just feeling so light, just feeling so free, and feeling ready to live in the newness of life that Jesus offers. And you know what? That's something that you and I can continue to do today because of who God is. He's willing to pardon so we can be real with each other and we can go to Him. A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, wouldn't it be a tragedy if you dragged yourself through life with a crushing sense of shame because you did not believe God would be willing to forgive you? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if you were harsh to people in their sin because you believed that that kind of attitude was pleasing to God? I mean, wouldn't that be a tragedy? Isaiah 55 shows us that God in his heart of hearts is compassionate, gracious, kind, and willing to forgive. That's the kind of God that I want to keep knowing, getting to know more, and I'm sure you do too. So why don't we do that together, church? I want to finish with this invitation from him. It comes from Revelation 21, and I want you to hear this from him personally this morning. Revelation 21, verse 6, this is what God says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Let's go to him and let's drink deeply of the water that he gives. Let me pray. Father, you see us right now. You know all of our secrets. You know all of our brokenness. You know all of our sin. We thank you that in that place that your heart moves toward us, that you move toward us in compassion and forgiveness because you've paid the penalty for our sin at the cross with your own hands. Oh, Lord Jesus, we just, we just come to you this morning. We pray that you'd help us to see you as you truly are as a church. We pray that your grace would be such a part of our culture as a church, that we would be able to be honest with you and honest with one another because you are gracious and willing to forgive. Please shape us, Jesus. Please transform us. Please have your way in us. And we pray that we can move out into our world, living in the newness of life that you offer and sharing the good news of the grace of Jesus with those around us. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? I just want to pray this blessing over you from Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.